You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Welcome to another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for this week. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me today is Nathan Gilmore, who's an associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How's it going, Nathan? Going pretty well. It's a busy week, but uh, I'm enjoying it. Also with us is David Grubbs, who's a assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Juneau, Alaska. Is that where it is? David? <laughs> yeah, n- no. No, it's... I, I, I sometimes wish it was Alaska. It does not feel like Alaska now. It feels like the inside of a dog's mouth right now. Oh, and it's only February. I know, right? Well, today we're going to be talking about um, about Miles Davis's seminal jazz record, Kind of Blue. Uh, we, we conceived of ourselves as doing a occasional episode here and there on jazz records and we figured this is a pretty popular and basic one to begin with which is not the same thing as saying that it's a uh, a, a bad or elementary record it's just one basically everybody who's at all interested in jazz owns but before we get into that discussion uh what's going on on the network oh let's see uh you know we've got some more christian humanist profiles interviews rolling rolling along uh sectarian review what did they do most recently i can't remember they did an episode about u2 and rem starring me michael farmer they did indeed uh christian feminists also did a two-part episode on feminist theory i haven't listened to it yet so i can't comment on the content but i plan to listen something there to make everybody angry i think (laughs) that's good that's good because because that's the point i guess I, you know, the CFP gets way more hate mail than we do. Which makes me sad, but not jealous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when women dare to speak on the internet, somebody has to hate them. Yeah. That's... Don't do that, y'all. Though, I don't think that any of y'all, dear listeners, are the ones writing that, so... Uh, no, you are incorrect about that. Oh, no! <laughs> They get an occasional email asking why they can't be more like us. Shame on... Oh, that's not right. We very rarely get emails asking why we can't be more like them. Shame on you. You know who you are. Shame on you. That's that's right. That's right. If you don't listen, if you don't like it, don't listen. Well, anyway... <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm off today because I'm not at on work. On that note... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, David, there's a lot of great jazz musicians, but anyone making a list of the greatest is going to have to have Miles Davis in the top four or five. What makes him so important, and where does kind of blue fall in his career? Yeah, so, brief anecdote. Uh, I come home, uh, this is uh, this is the second time we've taken a run at this episode, dear listeners, and so uh, the first day for, for, you know, for whatever reasons we weren't able to, to, to record the way we wanted to. I, I was sick home. and home in bed. Yeah. Um, so I get home and Katie asks me, so what did y'all record about today? And I, and I explain the situation. And she's like, well, what was the topic? And I said, well, we were going to talk about a Miles Davis album. She says, oh, you're going to talk about Kind of Blue? And I was like, I'd never heard of it before you pitched it at me, Michael, because I knew nothing about any of this. 
and my wife's like, oh, are you going to do the one that, that we're doing? So, so apparently you should have Katie on this episode, not me. <laughs> Why can't we be more like the CFP, I think is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's my point, right? Um, so, that my, my preamble narrative is simply there to say I speak out of a vast ignorance. And so if I say things that are just blatantly wrong or come to conclusions that are themselves incorrect, um, please flag me down and, and, and don't hate me, listeners, because I'm... I, yeah. So, Miles Davis, uh, trumpet player, also a composer uh, to the degree that jazz is composed, uh, and a band leader. Um, that more, more on that. Uh, he began playing in bands in high school. He took up, uh, he took up the trumpet at, the, at a young age. His mother wanted him to play violin, but he took up trumpet. Uh, even uh, even in high school, he was uh, playing in in kind of local clubs and things like that. Um, uh, at the at the age of eighteen, uh, in nineteen forty four, uh, he persuades his parents to let him go to what would become Juilliard in New York. Uh, it didn't have that name yet, but it was. But that's. It was that that famous music institute. What he was really going to do was to try to track down Charlie Parker and get into the jazz scene. All right, uh, he was successful in doing that, uh, which his father was um, supportive of in ways that, as I was reading that kind of part of the narrative, I was like, man, his he had a really cool dad <laughs> if that was if that was uh yeah I, I don't know if the, if that if I would have played that dad role quite as chill as Miles Davis's actual dad does after that his career is bewilderingly complicated to me but apparently this is normal in just the history of jazz and I and I poked around in a bunch of different places kind of read the stories of of other kind of major players in 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 jazz history and it's all like this just this kaleidoscope of big figures who even I've heard of shifting from you know in kind of one constellation to another you know all pioneers stretching out in different directions with different you know, kind of movements and styles that all have names, and I don't understand the distinctions being being who I am. He knew everyone. Miles Davis played with everyone. Uh, he was parts of part of different bands, and then he began forming bands on his own account. Um, uh, began was first on a recording in '45, and so he has a recording career. A, a, a recording career that, that spans almost his entire playing career. Um, his career was long, spanned many different style changes, and he always seems to have been at the forefront, either joining the new big thing or even creating the new big thing. And this uh, this album is an example of that um, uh, in, in ways that I'm sure we'll be exploring. Um, in fact... This album grew out of his uh, his desire to do make music in this new mode. He had an idea, and so he gathered together the musicians that that could make that idea reality. Um, even pulling in musicians who were no longer part of his band at the expense of relationships with current band members. Uh, trademarks. He plays the trumpet very cleanly. Very little, bre- very little vibrato. Um, there's a lot of there's there's a lot of mo- emotion in his in that in that trumpet. Uh, he had a, v- a very whispery, raspy voice. Um, he had vocal cord surgery, and apparently got in a yelling fight uh, sooner than he uh, w- when he should have been. You know, not even talking for the sake of recovery, and as a result, the the damage to his vocal cords left him with a, a kind of a trademark um, whispery voice. Um, he had the nickname the Prince of Darkness for reasons 
which I didn't I didn't quite understand, but apparently he he adopted that himself, even referring to himself by that name in liner, liner notes. Do you do you, David? Do you think that's because he had very dark skin, or do you think it's because he was a di- famously difficult person to get along with, or what? Um, some of the stuff I read suggested that it had to do with with his voice, with the fact that he had kind of a somber, intense personality, and he spoke quietly. Also, jazz seems to be associated with the nighttime. So, I mean, those those things I think maybe account for it more than the fact that he was an African American fella. But I don't know. I don't know who first pitched that title at him and for what reasons um, but apparently he had this this atmosphere around him that was not of of cheerfulness um, unlike you know some other musicians who uh, of, of that time who the, uh, the image that you have of them is always of this this big smile well um, or like Cannonball Adderley who doesn't have the the Louis Armstrong smile you might be thinking of but who by all accounts was a hot air balloon of a human being you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, Miles Davis is not that. Um, he has periods of of just rich activity, punctuated by periods of broken health, and this is largely due to substance abuse problems that he has his whole life: um, heroin, cocaine, alcohol. Um, you know, he would uh, succumb to. Uh, succumb to the substance abuse uh, it, it would drive his career off the rails um, uh, the, the, a couple points as I'm kind of reading through his story there were a few points where he, w- he would embarrass himself and that would be the point in which he realized that's, that was too far he'll take, the, he'll take time off do the hard work to get clean come back fresh have, have a more period of fruitful activity and then, and then fall back into it and so that probably had some of the, that probably accounted for some of the difficulty to work with him too. Though he also resented that problem in other musicians and the way that it made them unpredictable. Um, so, well, he worked with Charlie Parker for crying out loud. Right. So, what am I? Uh, what what needs what needs to supplement this? I, I I haven't been getting into a lot of specifics, but that's because. There are so many of them that I'm frankly confused by all of it. I've tried to find patterns. Yeah, one note that you one note that you touched on, David, that uh, he was an innovator through his own his whole career. Uh, one thing that I encountered a few times as I was reading around before the episode is that later in his career, you know, in the decades after Kind of Blue, a lot of times people would ask him to, you know, revive and revisit Kind of Blue, and basically he refused. He said, you know, that's not the music I make anymore. Uh, so he really was just a moving target through his career. Uh, you know, he the the impression I got uh, is that, you know, he wouldn't revisit the old hits while he was right. introducing his new stuff. Right. The, the quote that I saw in several different sources was, don't love me for Kind of Blue, love me for what I'm doing now. Yep. Uh, there's an apocryphal, probably apocryphal, story about Davis that he was invited to a reception at the White House and Nancy Reagan came over to him and asked him what he was doing there. You know, why are you here? Not necessarily in a mean way, I think. Uh, and he said, well, I changed the course of music four or five times and all you did was blank the president. <laughs> but wow. apparently not. Apparently not true. Although, I mean, it is it is true that he changed the course of music four or five times he he is not the first person to do the things he does but he does them most popularly and arguably best most famously his albums in a silent way and bitches brew are two of the most important and most listenable i think fusion records jazz fusion records but he also brings hip-hop and funk into jazz uh uh, modal music as we'll talk about he popularizes cool jazz he popularizes i mean he um i I worry about saying popularized because it makes it sound like he is like a pat boone type making uh yeah no it's 
Yeah, I mean, he he he's not making bottom shelf versions of top shelf quality stuff. He perfects it. Yeah, he makes top shelf quality stuff, but he does it in such a way that other that the people who hadn't embraced that style f- discover it and find what is in there to love. Um, yeah, I, I I think that I think that's a good distinction that you make. Well, Kind of Blue did not invent the genre called modal jazz, but it did popularize it, as we said, and it's still the most famous example of modal jazz. What exactly are we talking about when we talk about modal jazz? And in particular, we should probably compare it to the bebop of the 1940s and early 50s. Right, so just a little bit of background on bebop. I mean, it is the kind of jazz that becomes prominent when the dance halls and the big bands of the World War II era uh, start to give way to you know the smaller clubs and to the smaller jazz combos, but it's still got uh, in common with that old swing music uh, a basis of moving chords. You know, it's the chord progression that makes it jazz, and you know musicians are certainly improvising on top of that. Uh, you listen to bebop records, and I mean it is still uh, very much a music that that features solos uh, more than anything else. When you think of a a Dizzy Gillespie record from that era, or a Charlie Parker, we mentioned him from that era. Uh, you know, it is the signature personalities of these soloists that you hear. When we start talking about uh, modal jazz, though, uh, it, it's a wonderful bookish little story of jazz because uh, it, it kind of gets its start with this book by George Russell, who's a jazz musician called Lydian Chromatic Concept of Tonal Organization. <laughs> Real page turner. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nice. (laughs) And what's amazing about this, uh, and one of the reasons that, you know, people who are bookish like me tend to like jazz, is that he is reintroducing some of those Lydian mode uh, note progressions uh, that we see in the Middle Ages and certainly in the the ancient Greek period, uh, but that, you know, you don't really talk much about in a lot of modern music and certainly not in jazz music. But we start to bring that in. And when we talk about that Lydian, we're talking about, you know, alien chords. We're talking about Doric chords. We're talking about things that are not necessarily majors and minors, but are experimenting with what goes on inside of that octave. Uh, So the other feature of it, uh, and one of the things that really gives Kind of Blue its sound, is that you're not necessarily moving from chord to chord in rapid succession the way that a bebop record would, or before that a swing record. But instead, you might sit on one mode for 8 bars, 12 bars, 16 bars, which doesn't give the soloist a whole lot of leaping off points to, uh, you know, basically give the solo leverage, if you'll excuse that metaphor. Uh, But instead, the soloist has to create the interest, you know, uh, on his own. So, I mean, it is a different kind of uh, combo music. Uh, that even more so than bebop features that soloist. Uh, now, Michael, I mean, you know, uh, I always turn to you when we talk about, you know, any kind of 20th century music. So, I mean, what else is there to say about modal jazz? Well, I think the best example of it, all, all the pieces in here, except maybe Freddie Freeloader, are basically modal. But the one, the one where it's most obvious is the last piece, Flamenco Sketches, which has no particular melody. And each soloist is soloing in a particular mode that they determined in advance for as long as they feel like doing it. So if you, right, if you right. know what you're listening to, you can really hear it uh, on that piece. And, and the musicians have largely chosen the mode that works the best for their particular personality and playing style. Um, that's about all I can tell you about it because I, you know, I, I'm not trained enough in music to to be able to talk about the difference between the Lydian and Mixolydian or whatever m- modes. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Like, like, like I said, I just recognized him from Plato's Republic, and I was terribly happy. Right. So, I mean, what, what we're dealing with, what we're dealing with here is a new way of thinking about scales, essentially, and it, it privileges these long, these long scale improvisations over, as you say, the quick chord changes uh, typical of bebop. Now, uh, as I said, this is not the first modal jazz record. In fact, it's Dizzy Gillespie who does the first jazz modal jazz record, Cubana B and Cubana Bop in 1947. But this and uh, 
Coltrane's Giant Steps, which was recorded between mm. the time this was finished and the time it was released. Uh, those are the two most famous examples of modal jazz. Those are the two everybody knows. And I mean, it's interesting, lest you confuse modal jazz with this very slow, laid-back thing that Davis and company are doing here, go listen to Giant Steps, which is also modal and much more peppy and energetic. Also worth pointing out, um, Cannonball Adderley and John Coltrane had never played modal jazz before coming to the studio that day. Oh, I didn't know that. So they're okay. kind of they're kind of wow. thrown blind into it, and I think it it really shows you the caliber of musician those two are. Uh, these are other than flamenco sketches, all of these are first takes. Wow! So they they jump right in right, and just right. nail it. Yeah, which, which blows my mind because when I think of you know producing an album, I think of a process that takes weeks, maybe yep, months. Yep. I mean, these are these really are one day deals. Well, let me put it this way: I was just I was just recording music right before we right before we started, and um, I worked on one like eight bar guitar solo for forty five minutes because I am no John Coltrane. <laughs> no, that's that's just amazing. I did I, I didn't look dig that much deep that deeply into the into this the story of the, the the practical side of recording this album i didn't i didn't know that until you just said it that's so impressive it's pretty impressive and flamenco sketches in particular there's not a set time they play so i mean if you listen very closely you can hear you you can hear it shifting you can you can you can almost see them looking at the rest of the group and saying my solo is almost over why don't one of you pick it up it, it's really it's really an incredible uh, story. There's a there's a nice documentary about it on YouTube if anybody's interested in learning more about how this album was recorded. Well, this is uh, Miles Davis's album, but one thing that it's so great is that it's packed with these killer sidemen who would very quickly be leading their own bands. Paul Chambers, um, I, not so much known as a band leader, but played uh, played on Giant Steps and many other important jazz records. Cannonball Adderley, Coltrane, of course. Uh, I mean, is as famous as Miles Davis, basically. Mm-hmm. And then especially the pianist Bill Evans, um, who is as key to the sound of Kind of Blue as, as Miles Davis is. David, what can you tell me about Evans as a pianist? And in particular, you might want to think about how his style differs from Winton Kelly, who plays on Freddie Freeloader. Yeah, a little bit of a uh, little bit of the backstory that I that I did that I did check into. Um Bill Evans had been part of Miles Davis's band for a while, but the, um, if I remember rightly, the, the, just the pressure of touring and all the rest of that had, um, had just been bad for his health and he had, he'd stepped back from that, but Miles Davis brought him back for this project. And at least, uh, according to some of the things I read, Wynton Kelly, who was at that time, the current pianist in Miles Davis's band, Wynton Kelly didn't know that. No, he did not. <laughs> so when he's only included in one track on this, that that was uh, there was there was there was friction, as I've under uh, as I understand it. Um, the difference between Bill Evans and Wynton Kelly, I'll start with Wynton Kelly because he his track Freddie Free Freddie Freeloader, um, the only one that he plays on, I believe. That is correct. Uh, he's more like what I think of when I think of jazz piano. Um, just listening to that particular track, uh, it it was it was more like the sort of thing that I expected to hear from the piano.
chords when he's in the background. Alright, the 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 and the, the kind of the regular chord progression, very very rhythmic. Uh, and then when he's he's doing the solo, um, very very sharp notes, um, not not very sustained. Um, louder, much uh, very emphatic. Um, the single notes that are accelerating into almost into runs. He's playing playing very very quickly, very emphatically with with particular notes, but but in 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 these runs, fewer chords. Um, that slight delay before each note that that syncopation is probably the best word for that yeah um but yeah I, I don't I don't even know the language for it but that that way in which um, if it was a different genre of music the piano's note would have gone at a particular spot with the rest of what follows it but it's just that little bit of just that little bit of drag that makes it jazz syncopation okay um, Bill Evans, on the other hand, reminds me of the French Impressionist. That is that is the right that is the right way to think about him. I think. Um, and I was thinking particularly of. Oh, I was thinking of of, La Mer, though it's mostly strings, but it has the has, it's 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 a very slow and soft in parts. Um, also a bit of uh. Ravel's Pavon for a Dead Princess, um, the piano version of that. Um, softer, much more sustained notes that he just sort of lets linger into silence. Um, even in solo, still very, still very based on chords and not and not kind of like single sharp notes. Um, a much more kind of atmospheric melody, uh, tone poemy. Um, hard to describe. It's a lot more melancholy, a lot more um, sort of sit back. Mysterious? Yeah, sit back, listen, think. Um, I didn't feel tempted to tap my foot to it. The Wynton Kelly, yes. Bill Evans, no. I didn't realize that the the sparsity of Evans is playing until I sat down and listened specifically to the piano. He's really not filling out very much at all. There's a lot of open space. And you compare that to Kelly, who is nothing but notes. He's, I, I think Kelly owes much more to someone like Thelonious Monk than Evans does. You're definitely right to bring in the Impressionist. Um, the opening the opening piano part to So What that begins the record is inspired by Debussy's Les Voiles. So I mean, you're you're definitely hearing the right thing when you hear Debussy and Ravel in uh, in Evans's playing. Cool, cool, cool. And I I really like I I just wanted to know more as I was listening through this album. I wondered what led that guy with that sound um, into this genre. But that may be that that may be uh, more an expression of my vast ignorance about what all fits inside of jazz than it is about necessarily about Bill Bill Evans' uniqueness. Well, and I, I think it's worth noting that Ravel loved jazz music. Ah, okay. So that, that influence goes both ways. Cool. I mean, is, 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 this, is this kind of a, 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 a prominent variant of jazz piano, this style, or is, is this much more the Bill Evans the Bill Evans band style. This is, I think. No, I'm I'm no jazz expert, so I, I don't want to I don't want to speak out of turn. But I don't know anybody else who plays like Bill Evans does on this record. Do you, Nathan? Uh, no one comes to mind. I mean, I you know, again, my familiarity you know is is relatively limited in scope. But I mean, I can't think of any other pianist who does that kind of sound. Are either of you familiar with with the music of of the band that he formed after he left Miles Davis's band? I have heard their version of Blue and Green. Okay, but that's that's all. Okay. Yeah, because I, I I was just just wrapped by what he's doing here. Well, the other interesting thing about him is that he's the only white member of this band. 
So I'm I. If you're Winton Kelly and you come in and the white guy you replaced in the band is at the session instead of you, you you've got to oh. not be terribly happy about that. Yeah. I think what what I heard is that Jimmy Cop, the drummer, kind of mediated between the two of them. But between uh, Kelly Davis and, Evans. and Kelly, or oh Kelly and Evans. Okay, okay. Because I was going to say, I mean, there's <laughs> there's a, there's also Davis's role in this that we got to take into account. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he 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 he's the one that made the call and didn't t- and didn't tell Kelly, you know. I, but th- that that just seems to I mean is is that is that typical of the way he worked? It's it seems as if um, I know that he had relationships with a lot of these uh, with a lot of these musicians that uh, they were you know in his young career they were his idols they were his colleagues, but in in at least in that part of the story, Miles Davis is almost treating them more more as instruments. That he had- yeah, I think the music was primary for him. And so these are the guys who would get the sound he wanted. And it's not like he directs them. He's not telling them exactly what to play. But he picked them because this is the album he wanted to make. And he couldn't make it with Wynton Kelly playing on all five tracks. Freddie Freeloader was my first favorite song on the album. So it's not like I think Kelly is bad. Right. It's not even that I think he doesn't that that track doesn't fit with the rest of the album, but you don't have this album if you don't have Bill Evans. Right. No, no, he's, he, he's, he's very, very good though. Though what I would say is Bill Evans is doing more of what I look for when I look for music. Um, I, I've, you know, I appreciated the Kelly, but the reason why Evans surprised me is because I didn't expect to find on this album, the sorts of things that I look for in music when I'm picking my own. Do you, do you, what are you what are you looking for, David? Do you mean the intellectual quality to his playing, or I, do you do you yeah. mean the kind of mysteriousness? I like the 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 atmospheric, mysterious, quiet, contemplative. I like I like that in music. Um, so I I I, I didn't expect it. <laughs> so so one thing to look at with Evans is his solo in flamenco sketches. He doesn't get a lot of solos. Uh, on this record, he's he's mostly I, I hesitate to say backing people up because he's hardly doing that. He's mostly playing while other people are playing. Um, but in flamingo sketches, he gets a solo, a flamingo. Excuse me, if I've been saying flamingo, I'm very sorry. <laughs> flamingo <laughs> sketches. Yeah, yeah, you've been too, been doing too many of those uh, Disney episodes. <laughs> That's true. So so I'm not sure I know exactly what this means, but I have it written down. So uh, if, if listeners understand music theory better than I do, they can feel free to let me know. But he is playing on his solo a G harmonic minor on top of a D Phrygian dominant scale. So okay. I think he may be playing in two different keys with his two different hands. Huh. I, I think I think that's what that means. And if you listen to his solo, it sounds like he's accompanying himself, even more so than pianists always sound like they're accompanying themselves. It's it's really a remarkable that's amazing uh, solo. And the thing is, sometimes when you get very heady, intellectual, difficult music, it's hard to listen to. But you could listen to flamenco sketches, enjoy the heck out of it, and not know that Evans was doing anything difficult. dancing around talking about the sound of this album Um, and part of that is that none of us is really familiar enough with jazz theory to have the vocabulary to do that but I want to try anyway. Nathan what does this album sound like from a relative layman's perspective? Well we've already mentioned a few of the things already I mean this is a laid-back album Uh, you know the sense of urgency that you get you know from some jazz especially a lot of bebop isn't here I mean this is 
you know, a combo that basically lays back and lets the soloists do their thing. Uh, and I think that is, you know, part of the album's charm. Uh, you know, the personalities of these instruments are not these instruments. So you got me thinking of them as instruments. <laughs> um, the, the, the personality of these musicians, there we go, really shines through because again, the chord progression, uh, isn't moving them along. It isn't pushing them along. So, you know, you get the solo style of Davis, you know, that almost relies as much on the pauses as on the notes. Uh, then you've got, you know, Adderley and Coltrane doing their virtuosic saxophone runs and all of them just kind of seem to fit because the combo arrangement is so capacious. I mean, there's just so much room for them to do what they do. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, Michael, I mean, this, this is especially prominent, uh, on flamenco sketches, uh, in which, you know, each soloist, you know, basically has not only, uh, all the space in the world, but all the time in the world to do what they do. You know, my, my sense is, I mean, this is why uh, I can put this record on and, you know, just kind of enjoy it because uh, it's not trying to outrun me uh, the way that so many early bebop tracks do. Uh, it's not trying to, you know, uh, get the people dancing on the floor necessarily like a swing record d d does, pardon me. But, you know, it is giving space uh and it's that capaciousness i think that you know gives this album its its charm so you know i mean we, we could talk about you know individual solos but i think we're going to do that a little bit later in the episode but i think that's what you know really allows these jazz men to do what they do um david i mean you know we're, we're talking about general impressions of the album i mean what what do you think gives this album its particular sound that chillness that that you mention um, is is the the, the, the thing that, that that I loved most, um, which again I didn't expect, uh, and yeah that that's 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 my overwhelming impression. Um, I would listen to, I listened to this episode on on basically on loop for hours, so it got to the point where everything kind of flowed into everything else until you got to Freddy the Freeloader, Freddy Freeloader, and then and then it would loop back around again. <laughs> so, um, you know, not, not that this distinct things don't happen, but there's a, uh, there's a sense of, um, of unity in this album across the tracks that that felt very uh it, it made it difficult for me if you'd asked me which one is your favorite track that would be very hard for me to do because the borders between them after a while i lost track of um of course the fact that they're you know the the, the fact that it's instrumental helps that <laughs> um no, that is true, though. I mean, without a song structure, uh, you know, it is something that doesn't lend itself to, you know, very tight uh, divisions between the tracks. So, I mean, you could definitely listen to it as a, a unified piece more than you could a an album full of songs. That, that being said, I mean, each song other than Flamenco Sketches has a riff. Do you know what I mean? All blues has that da 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 da. da. I, I mean, all blues is pretty unmistakable to me, and so what has that wonderful uh, Paul Chambers bass melody? Do 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 do. So I mean, you're right. There's no lyrics and there's no vocals, but I I I, I think it's I, I think if you listen to the album a couple times. Um, they do fall out into individual tracks eventually. Oh, I, I'm, 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 I'm not I'm accusing sure that... you of not listening to it, David. No, no, no. I'm, I, and I, and I'm sure that's the case. It's just, um, it's, uh, I think maybe I, I'm, I'm such an experienced listener of this. Um, if you'd asked me the, f you know, the, f the first time that I'd listen you know, when I was when I was much younger and first was introduced to orchestral music, it was all just a wave of sound. 
Right, right. I think that's right. And now... I, I've been listening to this album for 15 years, and you've been listening to it for three weeks. Right. <laughs> and so, but now I can listen to, I can listen to uh, a, a symphony, and I can and I can pick out the different sections and the different instruments in the sections. Um, I can't do that yet with Kind of Blue. Um, but I, maybe, maybe my enjoyment of it is, is therefore lesser um, and certainly different from yours. Um, because for me, it's, it's, still, um, it's still very much all of the pieces together. Um, but, you know, when you asked me to pay attention to the piano... Um, that was actually that was actually rewarding, and I appreciated you invite you know giving me that that task of think about what the piano is doing. I haven't done that with all the other pieces of this album yet. Maybe you can. Maybe yeah, you can and help it, it me requires it requires time and concentration that I didn't give you. Do, do you know what I mean? I mean that's fine, um, but also also vocabulary helps. Also, um, just having things brought to my attention. Um, you know, cause you know, I, I, I don't yet, uh, I don't know yet. I don't yet know all the colors of the crayons in the box. <laughs> well, let me, if let me give you sense. a place to start. Yeah. Let me give you a place to start when you listen again. Um, the two saxophonists, uh, have super different playing styles. Um, and Coltrane is playing the lower one. So he's playing the, the tenor saxophone. Generally he goes first. Uh, of the saxophones in the in the tracks, and I don't think Adderley plays it all on uh, blue and green. Um, but but Coltrane's playing is so different from Adderley's, and and different in such an instructive way. Coltrane has this like hunger that Adderley's saxophone playing is just incredibly joyful. I, I in my notes I've written, is there a more joyful saxophone player than Cannonball Adderley? And I, I think I think once you once you crack the difference between their playing, the album opens up a whole new level. At least it did for me. Like I said, I've been listening not terribly closely for fifteen years, but doing this doing this episode made me like sit down and write out everything I could about the solos. And and I I feel like I especially Adderley, who I don't whose work I don't know outside of this album, I, I feel like I understand him much more than I did going in. Nathan, have you ever heard any of Cannibal Adderley's work? Uh, I've listened to a few of his albums a few times, but never with the attention that I have paid to this album. Uh, you know, I, I find myself hearing you two talk about, you know, the just the practice of attending to this album. I realize I haven't done that with Adderley's other albums. I've enjoyed them, to be sure, and I agree, Michael. I mean, it is this, uh, you know, boisterous, you know... Uh, I, I don't know what the uh, adjectival form of personality is, but that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I'm afraid I can't say much about the drumming. I, I completely lack any kind of vocabulary for talking about drumming. I, I will say that Cobb uh, hits the hi-hat right before uh, Davis starts his solo every time on every, on every song. And just Davis. I don't know what I don't know what that is. I like I like I said. I mean, I listened closely to the drums, but I don't know how to talk about drums. I mean, is it? And you know, again, vast ignorance. Um, is it fair to say we we talked about Miles Davis picking um, picking musicians rather than picking instruments? Um, is that is that the way in which a jazz composer works? Because uh, you know, if these musicians are doing such radically different things with even what is mechanically the same instrument, um, is the assembly of a band um, kind of at the same level in terms of jazz composition what choosing which instruments are in the ensemble or, or something like that for, for an orchestral piece? Yeah, I think that sounds right, David. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I, I think that's right. I mean, a jazz composer writes, you know, the chord progression and the, the riffs, I think, usually. But you're, you're right that Davis, because he's responsible for hiring these people, is in some sense responsible for the colors that this album takes on, um, which, you know, would have been radically different if we hadn't had these particular people. 
These six people? Six people. The word blue is right there in the title. Uh, David, what, is, what does kind of blue have to do with the blues? Oh, gosh. This one's hard for me because I know nothing about the blues either except that it's... Well, it was either give you the modal jazz question or give you the blues question, right. I figured. <laughs> uh, yeah, the blues. It's about how your baby left you, and so you have the blues. Uh, yeah, that's uh, you. You've got it exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've completely summed it up. Uh, do you ever, do you, remember, you guys remember that Wendy's commercial? You remember Dave Thomas used to do the Wendy's commercials? Yeah. There was one with uh, there was one with BB King and Dave Thomas said, "Don't worry, BB, you'll lick those blues yet." And uh, it, it, the the look on BB King's face is just amazing. Like, who is this? <laughs> who is this idiot white man? <laughs> I bet he cashed the check, though. Sure, sure did. <laughs> I would have. Um, I mean, I, I imagine it's mostly indicative of the mood of the album, which is largely not, you know, boisterous, energetic, upbeat, it, but but is much much slower, more contemplative, um, more melancholy. Maybe in in, in not a overtly weepy way um not a uh oh i i whatever the whatever this the 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 sadness version of perky is um and 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 overly theatrically sad kind of blues but but something that's 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 much more um the the way I feel on a rainy day when I don't have anything particularly tragic happening in my life, but there's just something about looking out the window and looking at the rain that attunes me in a different way. And this album this album feels that way to me, and it's one of the reasons why I loved it. <laughs> um, but in terms of that, that may be that may be part of it. But there, I mean, there are. There are kind of musical rules to how blues works. That's what that's what I was about to ask. Is I can't hear the rules, and so if those rules are being followed here, they're not being followed in ways that I could that I that I am attuned to perceive. They're, they're actually quite simple. Okay. So you have you have three chords. You have the one, uh, you have the four, and you have the five seven. I believe so. It's Let's say that's a C chord, an F chord, and then a G7 chord, which I, I think is what they're doing on Freddie Freeloader. Right. Uh, Freddie Freeloader, I mean, sounds to me, Michael, like pretty standard kind of 12-bar blues. Yeah. So you, you have, I can never remember the number of bars for each one. You, it's a 4-4-2-2-4. Four, four, two, two, four. Yeah. So you so you do uh, eight, essentially eight bars of the one, right? You tell me, Nathan. I've, I, I should have written this down and didn't. Yeah, I'm I'm counting through it in my head right now. Right, I could so I could play it. Blues. <laughs> I could I could play it, but I couldn't. Yeah, yeah. I, I I mean I think the twelve bars are you know four on one, and then drop for four, and then up for two, down for two, and then return for four. Well, for rock fans, if you think of "That'll Be the Day" by by Buddy Holly, that is a right, that is a right. perfect twelve bar blues. And as, as, Nathan, as Nathan points out, Freddie Freeloader is the only one of those in this album, even though the others owe something to the blues. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Is it, right, is it right. kind of like a limerick? It has rules in that it's, uh, I mean, it's kind of like a limerick in that there are rules. Or like a sonata. Yeah. Well, I, I'm just thinking of limerick where you've got like the two long lines, the short line, and then the returning long line. Well, I mean, think about blues with lyrics, too. Mm-hmm. So I, I woke up this morning and went back to bed. Said I woke up this morning and went back to bed. Uh, I, I don't know, I'm not very good at writing the blues. <laughs> but you, you would then have a third line that was different. Um, and then I woke up a this morning line, and I wish I was dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, the, the third line would be like, so, uh, on a morning like this morning. And then the fourth line would be, I, I guess I wish I was dead. So that would be the one... One, four, five, seven, and then back to the one. Right, right. 
You've heard it. You've heard it a million times and just never had, never really paid attention to it because it's the structure of rock and roll too. Sure. And then there's six notes in a blues scale as well, so it it does determine what notes you can play, and it's one of the modes too. I can't remember which one it is, but there's only six notes in a blues scale instead of seven. I I think it's a Dorian mode, but I I didn't write that down. So pathetic when we try to talk about these things, I know. Hey, hey, what would be more pathetic was if I was here by myself saying, the blues is sad. (laughs) And I I mean, there is is a sadness to it, but you can also do a very upbeat, joyful blues. And I mean, Freddie Freeloader has, I think, the most joyful solo on the whole album, which is the the Adderley solo on on that song. That piece, excuse me. It's not a song if nobody's singing. <laughs> my uh, my music teacher from high school will be horrified that I <laughs> am calling things <laughs> calling things songs. Right. No, all of, yeah. No, all of this is super educational. Thank you. But kind of blue is right. So so all the songs owe something to that blue structure, other than flamenco sketches. Mm-hmm. All of them owe something to that blues structure, but only Freddie Freeloader is a real blues. And Evans only plays um, only plays the blues on all blues. And even then, it sounds a lot like Ravel playing the blues. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. made you talk about the way the album sounds which is hard enough but here's an even harder question what is it that makes kind of blue so incredibly popular 60 years after it was first released well i feel that i'm going to revisit some of the same territory but it it bears revisiting you know first of all you know if you think about this as part of that mid-20th century jazz scene i mean you really do have some of the legends uh of mid-century jazz here you have coltrane you have adderley uh, obviously Miles Davis, you know, and you have, like I said earlier, a mode, uh, and, you know, a, an arrangement, if you will, uh, that gives them space to do what they do and you can really hear how different they are. So, I mean, I, if, if we think of this as an album of solos, which I do, uh, it's also an album that, that gives room for those solos. Uh, it also, you know, like I said, doesn't have what you sometimes get on, you know, a Dizzy Gillespie record or something like that. You know, the sense that it's trying to break your ankles with these sudden turns. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, when I listen to Dizzy, I mean, it is, I, I am keeping up with him. I mean, in fact, I, I usually can't do any writing or any kind of thinking work when I'm listening to one of those records because it it occupies my attention, right? And, and to go back to the drumming, I, again, like Michael, I don't really have a vocabulary for drumming because I've never... Uh, played the drum set. But one thing that I can say is that if you direct your attention uh, towards Cobb's drumming, you can really appreciate that, you know, he's doing some good things. Uh, But if you're not paying attention to him, he never demands your attention. Uh, So, I mean, again, uh, I, I keep returning to this idea of spaciousness, but I mean, that really is where I think this album's appeal uh, is particular. You know, it's not the only jazz album that does this kind of thing, but when you compare it to, you know, something like, uh, you know, Coltrane's A Love Supreme, you know, that is a an album that has an urgency to it, uh, and it, you know, it has a project to advance, if you will, whereas this one, you know, is a showcase more than a project. Um I mean, Michael, you know, you, you are definitely the music historian in this trio. So, I mean, well, what do you think, I mean, gives this album its particular staying power? I think it's very insightful to say that this is something you can do. 
you can listen to while you're doing other things, unlike, as you say, the, the bebop folks. And so this album could both be background music, and it's immensely rewarding when you pay close attention to it. And I, I think that's got to be part of it. Um, I also think that this sounds the way non-jazz listeners think jazz sounds, if that makes sense. I, and, and in particular, I'm thinking of the Adderley solo on Flamenco Sketches. sounds like a New York bus station on a rainy night. And I, I think people who are not super <laughs> awesome. familiar with jazz, that's what they want their jazz to sound like. And so you start with kind of blue and you move on to Coltrane or you move on to Miles's fusion work or you move on wherever. But this is this is a very accessible, beautiful place to start. There is nevertheless, I mean, there's a lot to say about it. And it's it's a great... I, 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 so I'm, I'm torn here because this is like the jazz album and, and I, I worry that our listeners uh, think of us as kind of rubes for discussing something as basic as kind of blue. But when you call it basic, you're not really talking about the quality of the music. You're really talking about its position in jazz history and popular culture. So, so this is a, an immensely rewarding album that also just happens to be the most successful in terms of commercial success, jazz album ever. Yeah, it would be like saying for once Hamlet. They, for once they get it right. Yeah, it would be like saying Hamlet is basic just because people read it in high school. Right. Yeah. But if we if our first if our first episode on literature was on Hamlet, I'd feel kind of weird about it. <laughs> right. That's so that's why that's why I point out we will probably do more of these. I assume David won't be leading them. Uh, <laughs> no, because you're still you're still kind of a novice here. Yeah, but. no, no, no. Think of me as in each of these episode as like the the wide eyed rube who just sort of walks through the piece like a country bumpkin in New York, looking at all the pil- tall buildings, going, "Whoa, that's me." And 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 I mean the thing is because because jazz music owes so little to rock and roll until you get to fusion which is its own kind of weirdness if if you're not you have to learn to know what to listen to if that makes sense but this this album is the place to start i I mean i i think i would tell anybody unless they were just super interested in big band music i would tell anybody who was interested in starting to listen to jazz to start here because i think what i told you david is that not liking kind of blue is like not liking red velvet cake (laughs) um this it's just so good this is something this is something i don't know this is 1959 is that right 59 correct okay is there something happening in terms of jazz's relationship to popular music around this time is it becoming further away from what is the mainstream popular or anything like that it is at the apex of its popularity i think like like this kind of jazz is at the apex of its popularity rock and roll is about to usurp it okay so i i mean after the 70s jazz stops innovating quite as much as it had been in the 40s 50s okay 60s and 70s so uh, you're 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 getting to the point where it's about to be eclipsed so so this is which is not to say yeah. nobody made good jazz albums in the 60s and 70s or even that there aren't good jazz albums being made today and it's certainly not to say that there's not a lot of innovative jazz music of the 60s so when so when you say that this was a this was a successful influential album it's you're not saying it was a successful influential album amongst the sorts of people who like jazz no I, this is the one jazz album most people own okay right when, when you say when you say Nathan yeah it sounds about right I mean you know if, if you think about it this way I mean this is 
an influential in black <laughs> influential jazz album uh, before jazz becomes a a subject for university study. Okay. That that in in my mind, I mean that that kind of marks the moment when a form of music you know is about to be. Well, I mean, or has, you know, really passed its moment of public acclaim, right? You know, when you get uh, bachelor's degrees studying a thing, probably something else has supplanted it as the most influential kind of music. But, I mean, I want to make it clear that we know that people are still putting out good and popular jazz records now. I think VJ Iyer sells quite a few records, as much as anybody right, right. does today. I'm just saying, as I flip through the radio stations in Houston, nothing sounds like this except on, like, Sunday nights on public radio or something. Right. Yeah, that's that's probably fair. By the way, anybody who's interested, who doesn't know much about jazz and is interested in kind of sliding into it, there's a podcast I've been listening to for five, ten years now called in the groove jazz and beyond it's it comes out of the university of hartford which has a big jazz program and this uh this very likable uh guy named ken laster hosts it's like hour and a half two hours every week and you know you get his interests of course he's super into john mclaughlin for example who i find very difficult to listen to um but he plays the new stuff and the old stuff, and it's if, if you don't know much about jazz and are interested in learning more, I think that's a good place to start. Cool. Well, I want to end by going around the horn and talking for a moment, or about a moment or two, uh, on the record that we find particularly effective or beautiful or moving or however you want to think about it. Grubbs, we'll start with you, and when you're done, just uh, pass it over to Nathan. I've already... I, I've already said all, uh, all all of my all of my impressions, but just to once again salute Bill Evans um, in in blue and green um, and in the flamenco sketches, uh, just just so 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 lovely, and the one of the things that I come to music for is is to let it become background to the point where it's almost as if it's integrated into my mood. Not background in the sense that it's meaningless and forgettable, but in the sense that it starts to become an atmosphere that I inhabit. And this album really accomplishes that for me. Um, And if that's what you look for in your music, um, here's a good one. Nathan? Well, oh, that was the baton pass. All right. Yes. Oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, I want... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great that you went to the hi-hat because the moment that I enjoy every time it comes around on this record is Davis's own solo uh, at the beginning of Flamenco Sketches. I mean, this is uh, a plaintive, free-form song on brass, really. Uh, and, you know, this is virtuosic not because he can put so many notes into the air in such a rapid succession uh but because he has developed this sense of when a silence can speak more than a note uh and i mean in my mind i mean it is one of the trumpet solos that uh i would think of among the great ones in jazz and the and now to you, Michael. <laughs> John Coltrane um, is responsible for two of my, my, probably my two favorite jazz tracks ever. One is uh, The Night Has a Thousand Eyes, and the other is After the Rain, and they're two very different tracks. So it, it should come as no surprise that Coltrane has my favorite moment here, which is his solo on Blue and Green, uh, which is much more romantic than most of his playing on this album. It is vulnerable. It's tender. You can hear his heartbreaking, and it's also over almost before it begins. Uh, and on an album of pretty extended solos, in some cases, uh, that solo really leaves me wanting more. So I uh, recommend you go back and listen to to Coltrane in Blue and Green. Cool. 
Well, that's our discussion of Kind of Blue. I'm sure we left a lot out. So if you have anything you want to say about that record, if you want to tell us we're basic in our <laughs> in our discussion of, of jazz music in general, feel free to send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Our website is christianhumanist.org. Nathan, what are we talking about next week? Well, next week, uh, you know, we're going to go into a, another realm where some of us are more comfortable than others, uh, namely theology. Uh, the theologian George Lindbeck died earlier this year. Uh, his book, The Nature of Doctrine, was greatly influential on me. So Michael and David are being gracious enough to uh, talk about George Lindbeck's The Nature of Doctrine with me. It's going to be our trio this year. Well, sounds good. I, uh, I guess I look forward to that. I started <laughs> reading the book and have only the most general <laughs> sense of what he's talking about. So... This should be. I. I will. I will be David. For the next three weeks. <laughs> yeah, David I was gonna say, Michael. Yeah. My, Michael, you just described my disposition on every rock and roll episode hey, we've ever done. Hey, fair enough. Fair enough, man. This is also David. You're gonna have to. Yeah, th- you're gonna have to pick one that'll make Nathan feel left out next. Th- this is the Christian Humanist podcast genre, is it not? Like one of us selects something. Like like one of us throws the other two in the pool <laughs> with their clothes on and laughs. Like every episode, pretty much, but you know, this is what the people come for, right? So I hope our I hope our <laughs> listeners are looking forward to hearing me stammer incoherently next week. <laughs> the Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Ellen Peterson. Uh, for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubbs, this is Michael Farmer saying, "Let your sins be strong, and let your faith be stronger." <laughs>